Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. The reason why we're going to do Galatians today is because next week we're actually launching a preaching series where we were going to go through every major section of Galatians. Okay, so uh, the title of the series is uh, A Journey into Captivity. Journey into Captivity. And Paul's perspective is interesting in Galatians. He actually believes that that's what life is. It's a journey into captivity. Every single one of us will be held captive by something. You don't really have a choice in that. You will worship something. Something or someone will captivate your heart and drive your life. It's in our human nature. This is Paul's perspective, right? The only choice we get is what actually captivates you. And in the letter to Galatians, Paul says you have two basic choices. You can be captivated by the spirit or you can be captivated by the desires of the flesh. And choose wisely. He says choose wisely. Because one of them, the flesh, oh, it gives us beautiful promises. Promises that feed and play to our loudest desires. It promises us things like freedom and instant gratification. But what it delivers over time is far from freedom. It delivers slavery. It's far from gratification. It delivers long-suffering. So choose wisely. He says, you can choose the flesh, but I'm just going to tell you what it delivers. He said, or, or you can choose the spirit, on the other hand. Which, while the, spirit, the spirit's promises aren't quite as enticing on the surface, the spirit demands surrender. The spirit demands self-sacrifice. But over the long haul, he promises, the spirit delivers freedom on the other side of surrender. Deep joy on the other side of self-sacrifice. So choose wisely. You can be captive to the spirit. You can be captive to the flesh. We all choose, but you will be held captive to something. Now, I don't know if uh, the Apostle Paul did this on purpose or not. I don't think he did. But uh, if you look at the, the book of Galatians, it actually uh, flows in chronological order, almost. In what a life looks like if you are captive to the Spirit. How you mature if you're following in the way of the Spirit. It's fascinating. Paul starts the book by showing how all of our faith journeys start with a revelation of Jesus. God reveals himself to you through Jesus. Then you are justified by faith, adopted into the family of God, liberated from your sin, and you enter into this process, lifelong process, of sanctification towards Jesus, mortification of your sins, reconciliation to other believers, the body of believers around you, perseverance through the highs and lows of life, and then preservation of the gospel truth that you've been given. You see, and this is going to be the order of our next nine weeks. And I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss it. You're not going to want to miss it. Because while this sounds like a lot of doctrine, this is actually who you are if you are in Christ. Now, that's next week, though. That's next week. Before we get there today, we got to study Galatians. 
And I think that if you'll bear with me through all the history today, you'll come out the other side uh, of today with an understanding of the historical circumstances underneath all the doctrine, the story beneath the story. I was actually talking to one of my friends for the 9 a.m. service. He's like, I really love the Bible study weekends uh, because it makes the book into real life. It just like tells me what's going on. And then all of a sudden, it's like the passages that I read from the book are illuminated because I know what Paul's talking about. You'll get that today if you'll just grind through this with me. Now, I will just remind you that while there's lots of theology and doctrine in Galatians, it's not actually a theology book. What literary type is Galatians? Class, it is a letter, it's an epistle. And class, last semester, we learned two tricks on how to read an ancient letter well, specifically a letter from the apostle Paul. Trick number one is this. When you read a letter, treat it like you're listening to one side of a phone conversation. Youth, did you know that your phones make phone calls? They do. Like, so you've ever been on like, like in a room before where somebody's on an intense phone conversation and, and you could tell that you're like, oh, it's, something's going, okay, what's, who are you talking to? Put it on speaker, right? Like you want to know. And, and if you listen closely to the person on the phone talking like giving it to, you can start to gain insight about who's on the other end of the phone and what exactly is going on. Well, in Galatians, we get to hear Paul's side of his phone conversation with this church in Galatia that he planted. And I'm going to tell you what, if you listen closely, something's up. Some real stuff is going down. And Paul is not happy about it. Now that leads us to our interpretive key here, okay? And this is, this is the key to, to Galatians, right? I know it's a lot. I know it's a heavy slide. Try your best to write it all down. I'll come back to it several times. Right? This, this is the interpretive key for understanding this letter. All right, we've already established that uh, Galatians literary type is a theologically dense letter. Um, its author is Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. We'll talk about that in a second. Its recipient is a network of churches planted by Paul in Galatians. I'll pull out a map later. But here's the problem. Here's the problem of the church. And there is a problem. This is why Paul writes the letter. He doesn't write it to give you a bunch of theological doctrines, although he does. He writes it for this reason. It's because there are some very influential false teachers from inside of Christianity who have gone into these churches he's planted in Galatia after he left those cowards. They've gone into his churches and they've started undermining Paul's gospel to the Gentiles by adding Torah allegiance on top of faith in Jesus alone. I call it a Jesus plus gospel. They're preaching, oh, Paul was wrong. It's not Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's Jesus plus Torah. Now you can imagine how Paul responds to this. He ain't happy. In fact, his tone is fiery and frustrated. I wanna show you a couple passages here just so just to get you get a picture about how ticked off he is. Galatians 1.9, Paul says, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed when I was there, let that person be cursed. He's not talking theoretically right here. He's literally cursing out the false teachers who came in. Curse them out. Oh, you thought that was bad? Galatians 5.12, he has worse to say. He says, you know what I wish? I wish those who unsettle you would... Everybody read this together? I'm just kidding. No, no. He said, every, he said, I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. And some of you are like, oh, and you're judging Paul right now. You've said worse. 
You've said worse about somebody who roots for a different basketball team or <laughs> cuts you off in traffic. He's at least talking about heresy here. And he ain't playing. And for good reason, the stakes are high. See, Paul sees in this false teaching a potential for the church. It's only 15 years old at this point. The church is a baby. It's, it's, it's a teenager, right? But he sees already at 15 years old a potential for this to split into two denominations. And that's the last thing that Paul wants. So he fights. He fights for the integrity of the church in Galatia. And here's how he does it. Three parts. This is your outline right here. And we'll get to this in a second. Uh, first, he defends the Jesus plus nothing gospel that he preached in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. We'll see that in a second. Next, in chapters 3 and 4, he explains how this gospel, when it's believed, creates a multi-ethnic family, a Jew-Gentile family that comes together and whose core identity is in Christ alone. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he demonstrates how this believing, this gospel-believing community is set free. The gospel actually produces freedom collectively and individually from sin through the Spirit's leadership, not Torah's leadership. Now, we're going to get to all that in a second, but that's the outline for this. So take it all in real quick. If you're note takers, I'll give you one more second. This is the big picture, and we're going to drill down on it. You ready? Ready for some history? Okay, let's do some history. This leads us to trick number two for reading letters. Do you remember the second trick? If you want to read Paul's letters well, pretend like you're here on one side of a phone conversation. And two, after that, go see if Acts gives you any backstory to the letter that you're reading. Acts of the Apostles. Now, do you know what Acts is? Acts is the fifth book in the canonical New Testament. And uh, it basically tells us the story of the early church. We see the birth of the church at the beginning. Uh, we see its first 30 years or so at its infancy level. And it has a particular focus on Paul. Over half the book focuses on Paul's conversion, Paul's missionary uh, adventures, and some of the trouble that he gets into. And funny enough, if you read Acts 8 through 15 or so, you'll see the macro story of what's going on in the early church that's playing out in Galatia. It tells you everything you need to know about Galatia if you read those chapters right there. So let's walk through those chapters. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce to you first Acts chapter 8. Pre-Jesus Paul, a.k.a. Saul, the persecutor of the way, Christianity. Pre-Jesus Paul. Now some of y'all got a pre-Jesus day, don't you? You like to tell stories, this is, that was me before Jesus. Oh, don't, don't even play like you don't have 10 stories like that that you tell. Back in high school, back in college, right? You never believed. That was before Jesus. Well, Paul had that story too, a pre-Jesus story. It's fascinating to me that the one who will eventually write 13 letters that are canonized in the New Testament, the one who suffers all sorts of calamity for Jesus, all sorts of pain. Uh, the one who leads the church in Gentile inclusion. Oh, that was fun. Boom. Gentile inclusion. There we go. Careful. <laughs> one who leads the church in Gentile inclusion 
It's fascinating to me that just 15 years earlier, before he met Jesus, we see Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We see Saul was one of the witnesses who agreed and com uh, completely with the killing of the first recorded Christian martyr, Stephen. Wow, a lot changed, huh? Now you get to hear Saul's whole testimony in Acts uh, 22, three through five. Later in Acts, he's sharing his testimony. He shares it a few times in the New Testament. This is one of the places he does it. And uh, it just gives you a lot of biographical information. So I'm just gonna read through this with you real quick. All right, we'll just stop along the way. Per first, uh, Paul says, I am a Jew, which is important because we're gonna see he's not just any Jew, he's a Pharisee. I'm a Jew and I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Have you ever heard me teach on Paul before? Uh, I always point out that Tarsus is significant uh, because it was a hub of academia at this time. There was a, a Greek uh, geographer and historian named Strabo who at the time of Paul traveled around the Roman Empire and he would, what he'd do is he'd visit cities and he'd take notes on what was going on in the city and he'd create little travel guides for, for people to read. And he visited Tarsus actually around the year 20, which would have been about the time when Paul lived there. And he says some fascinating stuff about Tarsus, but one of the main things for our purpose today, he says that Tarsus was a hub of academia. It was more respected, according to Strabo, than Athens and Alexandria at the time. And he says that Tarsus had this thing where they would raise up, smart people didn't come to Tarsus, they were born in Tarsus. So they would raise up these intellectual young people and then send them out into the world, which by the way, tracks with Paul's path. Because he says, I was, a born, uh, I was a Jew born in Tarsus, but then I was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, if you've ever read the book of Acts, you'll recognize the name Gamaliel. He gets a little airtime there. If you read Jewish history, Second Temple history from that time, then you'll know a lot about Gamaliel. Gamaliel was uh, an important Pharisaic leader. During that time, there were two main schools of Pharisaic thought. There was the school of, uh, for those of you who care, Hillel and the school of Shammai. Two schools of Pharisaic thought. And Gamaliel was in charge of the Hillelites. He was, he was the leader of that school of thought, which makes him one of the two most important Pharisees alive during Paul's time. Paul studies under him. Now, the difference between these two schools is that the Hillelites were they were looser. They were looser on their interpretations of the law, less strict. The Shamalites, they were, they were zealots. They were willing to, to do violence and go to extreme measures in order to protect the integrity and the purity of their faith. Now, what I find so fascinating about Paul is that he was raised by Gamaliel, who was a Hillelite, looser in his interpretation. But when we meet him in Acts 8 and 9, he's acting like a Shamamite, persecuting the way of the Lord, prosecuting, imprisoning, throwing into prison, perhaps even killing followers of Jesus. We read on. He says, I was educated strictly according to our ancestral law. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were known for their love of the law and knowledge of the law. They actually believed that if the kingdom of God was to come, then we need to purify the people of God by teaching them to obey the law. So the law was very important to them. So I was zealous for God, uh, just as all of you are today. I persecuted the way up to the point of death by binding both men and women, putting them in prison as the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. 
from uh, them. I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus, and I went there in order to bind those who were there and to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. And that last sentence is important. Damascus. Because it was on his way to Damascus that, well, everything changed for him. Paul was changed and the world was changed forever. Because on the way to Damascus, Paul met Jesus. He had a radical conversion experience in which Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him, and from that day forward, it's just all different. Paul is baptized by Ananias. He changes his name and uh, becomes a Jesus follower for the rest of his life. Now, what's interesting is right after Paul's conversion, it's probably around that year AD 34, before he starts writing letters like Galatia and going and planting churches like the churches in Galatia, this is a little detail you'll catch in Galatians chapter one if you read it. Uh, Paul goes to the Arabian desert for about three years. Have you ever noticed this in Galatians one? He says, I go to Arabia for about three years. And we don't know why he takes this like little brief sabbatical. We don't, we're not sure. But, but I have a theory. I think he goes to the Arabian desert because he needs time to rethink everything. He's a Pharisee that's been trained in the old covenant. He's an old covenant conservative, if you will. And now that he's encountered Jesus, he realizes I need to become a new covenant progressive. Salvation history has progressed in Christ. There's a new covenant that's been established. I have to rethink everything about the Hebrew scriptures, everything about the old covenant in light of this. And he's a smart guy, so he needed time to do it. So he takes three years in the Arabia desert, my opinion. And uh, when he comes back, we see two major post-conversion shifts in his life. First, it's in his soteriology. He believes that salvation and inclusion in the people of God is no longer based on Torah adherence or circumcision or anything like that. It's based on faith in Jesus and through the faithfulness of Jesus. Faith and faith alone. Then the second major shift we see is that Paul begins to tell everyone that he has a special and unique calling from God himself to take this gospel outside the Jewish people to the Gentiles. God says this much to Ananias before Ananias baptizes Paul. God says, Paul's an instrument whom I've chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles, kings before the peoples of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, all that gets worked out, Paul's conversion, in Acts 8 and 9. Next, in Acts uh, 11 through 15, we see Paul's Christian career, his career career get launched, if you will. Uh, We've seen these first two. Um, Paul's persecuted his way. He has his radical conversion experience. He goes to Arabia. Wow, that says Arabia. Uh, And then... uh, And then when he gets back, it's interesting, he tries to get an audience with the disciples. Read the end of Acts 9. But you know what the disciples do when Saul the persecutor says, hey, I'd like to meet for a coffee? They're like, nah, bro, we know know this trick. We ain't happening, nuh-uh. We ain't telling, don't tell him where we are so we know how this guy does. Acts 9, 26 tells us the disciples are afraid of him for good reason. 
But Barnabas, this man who becomes a courageous friend and co-worker of Paul for many years, Barnabas meets with Paul. He hears Paul's story. He recognizes Paul's legitimacy. And so he goes and vouches for him in front of the disciples. Apparently he was a benefactor of the church. And when the disciples finally meet with Paul, they realize, okay, he's for real. And so they, he's accepted and endorsed by the key disciples. He starts preaching in Jerusalem and he's so good at preaching, he starts stirring up fights. And so they're like, uh, probably not a good time to stir up fights for us. So we're sending you back home to Tarsus to minister there. Now, Paul goes back to Tarsus. He's only there for about a minute because in Acts 11, Barnabas uh, then uh, decides to plant a church in Antioch, Syria. I'm gonna show you all these places in a second on the map. And on his way to Antioch, Syria, he says, you know who I want a church plant with me? It's that young whippersnapper who's got his act together, Paul. I like him. So Paul goes through Antioch, or Barnabas goes through Antioch, picks up Paul, and they plant a church in Antioch, Syria. Now, I would suggest to you that the church they plant in Antioch is the first example we have in all of Scripture of a healthy multi-ethnic church where Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. Okay, so let's go to the map here, and I want to show you all the places that we just did. You can see my, my stuff from the, first, from the first service here. Um, right here, this is Jerusalem, okay? See Jerusalem? Right here's Tarsus. This is where Saul was born. He travels down to Jerusalem, is trained there by Gamaliel. It is on his way to Damascus. You see Damascus right here? It is on his way to Damascus that he meets Jesus. Uh, from Damascus, he spends three years in the deserts of Arabia, which is not pictured in, in this map. It's down there. And then when he gets back to Jerusalem, okay, he preaches for a minute, gets sent to Tarsus, and it is there that Barnabas comes, picks him up, and takes him to Antioch. This is Syria, Antioch, right there. <laughs> and that's where they build the church. And they have success there. Uh, so much success there that if you look right here, the Antioch church decides that there needs to be more churches like them. Like them. So they send Ball, uh, uh, Barnabas and Paul out on their first ever church planning trip. And that's what uh, this slide shows you with the blue and, and the red arrows. It starts in Antioch. They come down here to Cyprus. They come up here to Pamphylia. And then you see this whole green area right here? That's Galatia. And they spend some considerable time in Galatia, in Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Then they circle back through and back around to their ascending church, Antioch. Once again, all this happens in Acts 13 and 14. Now they are so successful on their church planning trip, that there was a mass influx of Gentiles into Christianity, which really stirred up Christian culture. Because at this point, Christianity was a Jewish messianic movement. Do you understand that? You understand what I'm saying? Before the Gentiles start coming in, it's mostly Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Jewish scripture. So that's what the church is. That's why it stays in Jerusalem. That's why the, you know, uh, they're, they're mostly in Jerusalem at the time. But once they start bringing in a bunch of Gentiles, it, it, it messes with the culture of the church a lot. And so this caused church fight. A huge theological debate between the old covenant conservatives who wanted to hold on to Jewish tradition, Torah, circumcision alongside of Jesus and the new covenant progressives like Paul who says Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and launched a new one. Now the debate got so contentious between them 
that what we'll see in Acts 15 is the first ever, at least for recorded, church council come together and meet in Jerusalem. And all the hot shots show up. We got Peter, we got James, brother of Jesus, Paul and Barnabas come down and they work out there. What are we gonna do with these Gentiles coming to God? And fortunately, what we see is at the end of Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, specifically James, the brother of Jesus, rules in favor of Barnabas and Paul. I'll read you just a couple of passages for you to get the vibe of this, okay? First, in Acts 15, one, two, you see how this conflict boils up in Antioch. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were, this is after their first missionary trip, they're back at their sending church doing their thing. It says, while they're at Antioch, Syria, some men from Judea arrived and they began to teach the believers there. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you see the Jesus plus gospel? You need Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. It ain't Jesus plus, plus circumcision, it's Jesus plus nothing. Again, the reason why I'm reading this to you is because what happened in Antioch is exactly what happened in Galatia. Exactly. So it says, finally, the fight just, nobody was, was able to, to, to work it out that they sent Paul and Barnabas along with some local believers to, to talk with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this question. And read Acts 15, they hold a council. And at the end of the council, James, the brother of Jesus, a lot of people say that, that Peter was the first pope of the church. Well, if you look at the first church council, Peter was not presiding over the council. He gives testimony over the council. He didn't preside over it. James, the brother of Jesus, actually presides over it. And he offers the final judgment. In Acts 15, 19, to summarize, he says, my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Okay. Now, yeah. You can clap for that because you're a Gentile. <laughs> 2,000 years later, we benefit from the legacy of this decision. Now, that's a lot of history. Are you still with me? Do you, do you like this stuff? Do you care about this stuff? All right. Now. Northeast Christian Church, they love the word of the Lord there. Yes, we do. All right. So, so back to our, our slide here. We've, we've got the picture, right? We, got the, we know what the problem is. We know how Paul feels about it. We see the stakes, how high the stakes are. Now I wanna walk you very quickly through the outline of Galatians and how Paul fights specifically for this gospel in Galatia. First, in the first two chapters, Paul defends the Jesus plus nothing gospel that he preached. He defends the Jesus plus gospel uh, plus nothing gospel that he preached. Galatians 1, 6. If you read Galatians 1 through 5, by the way, in 1 through 5, Paul's like super nice. It's like this nice entry. It's like, hey, everybody, it's me, Paul. I'm an apostle and I love you, brothers and sisters, and Jesus died for us. And then he gets to verse 6. He's like switching to grenade launcher. I am shocked. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the gospel good news, but it's not the gospel good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or an angel or whoever, right? Just anyone, anyone who preaches a different kind of good news than we uh, preached to you when we came. I say it again, we've said it before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Woo! He's a little excited. Now, uh, many scholars call these, uh, what are these, these, these truth, these truth twisting teachers, 
many, many scholars call them the Judaizers. They're basically Jewish Christian missionaries. And once again, uh, I'm not going to read this whole passage to you, but you can see very clearly in Galatians and in other contexts what they were teaching. They were teaching a Jesus plus Torah gospel specifically with focus on circumcision. And if you've got teachers coming into church preaching that, you can understand why Paul is upset. I mean, these are his churches that he planted. He's not even there. And these dudes are going to come in and preach circumcision to a Gentile audience? Can you imagine? Imagine with me for a second if after I went on my sabbatical like I did this summer. I was like, hey, we're just going to invite some guest teachers in. And one of the guest teachers came in, and they were like, you know, Terrence comes in. He joined the staff by that time. Terrence comes in. He's like, listen. Uh, Tyler didn't tell you all the full story. I'm kidding. I'm not going to put this on Terrence. But, but, but somebody, somebody, a false teacher comes in. They're like, look, Tyler didn't tell you the full story, all right? Yeah, it's Jesus. But also, men, listen up, men, listen up. Snippity snip. It'd be a mass deconversion. Like, pandemo- mandemonium is what I, theologians call it. it. That's what it would be. Because it's like, nope, not worth it. Sorry, Jesus. Now look, um, this was the issue for them back then. It was, it was Torah adherence, Jesus plus Torah. It was a Jesus plus gospel. I would suggest to you today, we just have different issues. But oftentimes we see the Jesus plus gospel played out in so many religious circles. And if Paul was writing to us, it would be same message, just different plus. You see, we do this today uh, in our denominations. We tell Christians who come from other denominations, well, you can't become a true Christian until you become, you know, Lutheran or, or, you know, Church of Christ, non-denominational, Catholic, whatever. And when we do that, we change the message from uh, surrender to Jesus to join our group. It's a Jesus plus. We do it today with politics. Have you noticed? It's 2024. It's an election year. You know, I gotta, you know I'm going to talk about politics. i got to start talking about it. Yeah, I see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, did you ever stop talking about it? Fair point. Fair point. No. Um, but I want to preempt all the madness. And I see, and I know you see as well, you see this Jesus plus mindset in partisan politics with fundamentalist fury behind it. What's happening on both sides of the aisle right now is that people are creating political religions. Jesus plus my platform and my politician. And I'm telling you, like many of the politicians want it that way. They want it. They actually nurture it. They use religion to give a divine moral imperative to their viewpoints. Jesus is on our side, they say. And the second, the second you find yourself thinking, well, maybe they're right. The second you find yourself thinking, I don't really understand how somebody could be a Democrat and a Christian. I don't really, I don't think it's possible for somebody to be a Republican and support, you know, that man and a Christian. The second you find yourself thinking that, they've won. It's a Jesus plus gospel. And by the way, saying that is not undermining the importance of hashing out public policy that honors God and loves neighbor. We should be doing that. I just want to highlight to you how so many of us have put policy agreement as a prerequisite to admission in the family of God. It's a Jesus plus gospel. Paul cursed it then, he'd curse it today. Okay, so back to Galatia though. Uh, We've seen their message. The next question I always have is, 
how do they have so much influence, though? Like, just for some random stranger, false teacher to walk in and just convince everybody to get circumcised? I mean, like, <laughs> you, they got some juice. Or so, like, what's going on? So um, we, we, figure out, we figure out where their influence, their source of influence comes from. Now, I'm going to read you a passage here from Galatians 2.11. This is actually a scene that happened in the church of Antioch, Paul's sending church, his previous ministry experience. But he's telling this to the church of Galatia because the exact same thing is happening there, all right? I just want to be clear. This didn't happen in Galatia. It happened in Antioch. But basically the same thing's happening in Galatia. Do you follow me with that? All right, so here's what he says. He says, uh, we're in Antioch. And when Peter came, I had to oppose Peter. This is like the Peter, like the rock. Okay, he's like, I had to oppose Peter to his face for what he did was wrong. When he first arrived in Antioch, he ate with Gentile believers who were not uh, circumcised. This is great. Afterwards, afterwards, some friends of James came. And Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was more afraid of criticism from those who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And what? Even Barnabas? Even Barnabas. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, this is incredible, honestly. These false teachers had so much juice. They were so influential that they got Peter and Barnabas to buy into their two little mini denominations. Peter's a tough one. Okay, we've seen, we've seen Peter buckle before, but that was pre-Jesus' resurrection. Night when Jesus is betrayed, the day before his crucifixion, Peter denies Jesus three times. Once to a little girl, a middle school girl in front of him. So he's buckled before, but since then, we've seen a changed Peter. We've seen Peter preach to, to, to the Pentecost audience and baptize thousands. We've seen Peter uh, face prison. We've seen him face certain death and stand up for Jesus. So how? These must have been some influential folks here. And Barnabas too? Paul's like, you Barnabas? My ride or die. At least until Acts 16. You my ride or die. Not you too, bro. These are, these are top of the org chart leaders. Now Paul's defense, Paul's defense is an important one. Because he brings a defense in, in Galatians 1 through 2. His defense boils down to two things for him. Theology and his credibility as an apostle. He doesn't just play the theology card, I'm right and they're wrong, although he was. He plays the credibility card. I'm more credible than they are as a witness. I'll read to you two of these verses. Uh, Galatians 1.1. You think Galatians 1.1 is just this nice little introduction where Paul's really not talking about anything. He's just saying hi. Well, he is doing that, but he's also setting you, setting you up for his argument. He says, this letter is from Paul. I'm an apostle too. I was not appointed by a group of people or a human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So I'm, I'm a credible source, Galatians 1.11. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the gospel message that I preach, it ain't based on human reasoning. I received that message from no human source. No one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So he's playing the credibility card. He's like, Jesus told me. And then he throws down the theological gauntlet at the end of chapter two. Paul says, he says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by what? Obeying the law. Again, these are verses you will, you will recognize because they're super quote worthy and they describe who we are in Christ. But I just want you to notice the little clues about the historical context here. Paul's fighting with people over the law. 
the Jesus plus gospel. We have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we what? Have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying Torah. This is what he's talking about. For when I tried to keep Torah, it condemned me. It just showed me my sin. So I died to the Torah. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless for if keeping the Torah could make us right with God, well, there was no need for Christ to die. So he preaches it. And makes his defense. That's part A. Part B of the outline comes in chapters three and four, where Paul then goes and explains how this gospel, when you believe it, actually creates this multi-ethnic Jew-Gentile family whose core identity uh, is in Christ. Actually levels the ground here at the foot of the cross, doesn't he? Paul says, you are all children of God through what? Through faith in Christ Jesus. And all have have uh, all who have been united with Christ in circumcision, nope, not circumcision, in baptism, have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or free, anything that separates us ethnically, socially, religiously, that's all been leveled out. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. Do you remember the promise to Abraham, by the way, in Genesis 12? It's the covenant that sets up the rest of the Bible. Jesus comes to Abraham after a bunch of sin in Genesis 3 through 11. He says, Abraham, through your family, all the nations will be blessed. Through your family. And here it's coming. You are his heirs. The the heir of the heir of Abraham, Jesus. And God's promises to Abraham now belongs to you, he says. The one family. Which brings us to our third part of the outline. Paul then demonstrates in chapters 5 and 6 how this gospel produces freedom from sin through the Spirit's leadership. Not the Torah's leadership, the Spirit's leadership. Now, real quick, after Paul makes this argument in the first four chapters, he ends this way because he's anticipating the questions of his audience in Galatia and these false teachers. The Jewish law had been around for 1,500 years, guiding the people towards worship in God. So if all of a sudden it's been completed and fulfilled in Christ, people are gonna be asking, well, then what do we follow? What will guide us in the way of Jesus? We don't got the law anymore. We got the Torah. What is it? And Paul says, it's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. You got to tune into Him. Galatians 5, 16, he says, so I, let, I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. When you are directed by the Spirit, you are no longer under the obligation of the law of Moses. Again, you see how he's having a conversation with the law keepers here? Uh, Galatians 5, 22. He says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. See how these verses are illuminated? Sure, put them on a little poster on your wall with, you know, pictures of flowers growing. That's fine, right? But understand the historical context underneath them. Galatians 5, 6, he says, for when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What's important now is faith expressing itself in love. And then Galatians 6, 15, he says, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a, everybody together on this one, new creation, new creation. The book of Galatians. And it's fitting that we end here. 
with new creation. I believe it's Paul's exclamation point on this letter because for him, it describes the result of the gospel in one phrase. It's a new creation community. And for Paul, a new creation community had a very specific vision for what it looked like. This is Galatians. This is Galatians. I'm not, I'm not riffing here. This is what Paul says the new creation community is. He says, it's a multi-ethnic, no Jew, no Gentile, slave or free, male or free. It's a multi-ethnic, non-prejudicial, family-like community that's prioritizing faith in Jesus, that's learning to follow the Spirit, that's living in the freedom of love, that's safeguarding the integrity of the true gospel, and that is sharing it with everyone no matter their country, color, class, or culture. This is the new creation community. And what a mission, by the way. Isn't that beautiful? First Christian Church of Galatia, here's your target. Northeast Christian Church, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, here's your target. What a target. Paul was willing to fight for it, by the way. You see this. He's willing to fight for it. Are we willing to fight for it? To strain and yearn and long and try, try to bring this into reality. So a quick checkup. Let's just talk about it. Let's start with the first bullet there. Um, are we this? Are we this? Are we truly a multi-ethnic, non-prejudicial family-like community here? I mean, I know we can reach white people. Look around. But 32% of the people living within a five-minute drive of our campus are not right, uh, are, not, uh, are not white. Excuse the slip of the tongue there. <laughs> Somebody's going to clip that, put it on YouTube. They're going to be like, look at this preacher at Northeast. Let's try that again. 32% of the people within a five-mile drive of uh, this campus are not white. <clears throat> Y'all want to reach them too or not, nah? you know? I know that we're really good at reaching young families here. We are. This church has always had that as a, as a priority. Uh, it's interesting. Studies actually show that a church gravitates to plus or minus uh, 10 years uh, to the preacher. It gravitates toward that. So that's why not all, but a majority of the people who go here are like 20-something, 30-something families with dads who like sports. You know? I mean, that's, that's did you know that the... Largest demographic within a five-minute drive of this campus is actually a women who are 35 to 39 years old, which is why, again, look around. We have so many Stanley Cups in here. Got them! <laughs> no, okay. It's fine. But, nah. <laughs> Clip that one out for YouTube. All right. No, but that's, that's the majority of the people here. Okay, but what about, okay, we're, we got a lot of families. What about college students? You want to reach them? Are you okay with them rolling up in here, worshiping in their Bass Pro Shop hats when they never caught a bass? <laughs> in their denim on denim, goodwill rack, 90s, nostalgic fashion? I love it. Do your thing. It's the 90s all over again. You okay, you okay with them influencing your church? Because they have different priorities as a generation. They're not bad, they're just different. Can you make space for singles in a church dominated by families? 
What about seniors in, uh, in retirement? We did a senior luncheon in December. It was a great event. Um, I think everybody 55 plus was invited, which by the way, I did not decide the age cut off for the seniors luncheon. That Terrence is getting thrown under bus on that one. <laughs> Terrence.Terman at NECchurch.org. Um, no, but it was a great event by, by him and his team. Uh, I went to it. Uh, it, was, it was wonderful. That there's, the way they set it up is uh, if you wanted to come to the dinner, basically there was an admission fee, all right? You can't bring a dessert. Come to, come to the lunch, but bring a dessert with you. So we had 150 people show up and about 250 desserts. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, lunch, by the way, was sponsored by AARP. And uh, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, just <laughs> but no, but, but, but seriously, at the luncheon, I went around shaking hands, talking, talking with people at the church, and the, the sentiment was, was the same. I heard it over and over. People said to me, thank you for not forgetting us. Thanks for seeing us. So uh, young folks, are you okay with, uh, with their, okay, boomer, culture influencing your church? Uh, what, if we, uh, what if we start talking about issues that matter to people who don't look like you? Will you leave? Uh, can you be comfortable in a church where in the same tumultuous season, we were praying and caring and loving on the black community after the Breonna Taylor tragedy, but then we were praying and loving and caring for the police community after they almost lost one of their own running into the old national bank. Can you live in a community that holds that sort of nuance or are you just gonna dismiss them when they try to love who's hurting? What if we stood up here and said, hey, there's some real problems with the progressive left today. But then a few minutes later, we said, hey, there's some real problems with the MAGA right today. Could you listen? Or can you just, just not imagine how someone on that side of the aisle could ever, could ever vote that way and be a Christian? One thing's for certain, 2024 is going to put us to the test. What if more hand raisers and ameners show up at this church? I told the nine o'clock, when I said that, the nine o'clock was like. I was like, come to the 11, they're, they're, they're here. The rugs are full at the 11. You okay with that? So here's, here's the bottom line. What if in a few years, you were the minority here? Can you deal with that? I hope so because it's what a new creation community does. And by the way, that's just the first phrase. There are many more. Can we do the rest? Can we be a community that prioritizes faith in Jesus first? Like, can this be a place where, where sinners show up and they can worship you? It don't matter if what, what sin is in their past or their present. It's a sexual addiction. It's, it's an anger issue. They've got jacked up theology. They, I don't know who they are or where they've been, but are you okay with people getting in that baptistry over there and, and deciding to follow Jesus before they've tidied their lives up? Are you okay with being a part of a community learning to follow the Spirit? In a day and age where uh, we, we are told, uh, follow your heart, can you be a part of a community that says, well, only if the Spirit's there. A community living in the freedom of love, cross-shaped, self-sacrificial love, not self-gratification or self-fulfillment, but self-denial, self-sacrifice, and a community that continues to safeguard and commit to sharing it all. 
Are you willing to fight for this vision? Because my opinion, we must. Paul says this is what the church looks like. This is new creation. We must fight for it. It's worth fighting for. Because this gospel truth shows us who we are, shows us how we are supposed to live. It takes us on the beautiful journey into captivity. And people are confused today. There is so much confusion around identity, so much anxiety and controversy and pain around who am I and, and who ought I be. Well, Paul shows us. He shows us what can be true of every last one of us, if we'd like. He promises us that whether you've accepted or not, Jesus is on the edge of his seat trying to reveal himself to you right here and right now. And if, if you will just embrace him, then you will be justified by your faith, pronounced innocent of any guilt or shame that's burdening your soul. You will be adopted into a royal family with an eternal inheritance and a vision to renew the world. You will be liberated, liberated from your past, your trauma, your addictions, and your mistakes, sanctified. So you might age toward the horizon of human possibility. Your sin will be mortified, nailed on Jesus' cross and put to death in his grave. Your relationships will be reconciled in this new creation community as you come together because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You will give, be given perseverance to take life, life's high times and life's low times because life deals them both. And together we can preserve this gospel embodied in our community. Now, I don't know what your parents said to you about you. I don't know what lies our culture has seduced you with. I don't know what your previous religion or your previous church said, but whatever it is, it's not as good as this. So I'm inviting you over the next nine weeks to come along with us on the journey so that you might come along on the journey for the rest of your life. So Heavenly Father, that's my prayer today. Thank you for an opportunity to study your word in a deep way. I ask that it impacts every heart in a unique way. And, uh, and my prayer is that over the next nine weeks, we would discover who we are in Christ, who we are in the spirit. Spirit, lead us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.